Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. We've got a great show scheduled today. Matt Penny is going to be the guest. We're going to talk about the NBA draft. We're going to talk about uh, a few different things that we've seen in the playoffs uh, and how they connect to the NBA draft that is forthcoming, such as uh, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell's duel, some of the defensive coverages we've seen and more. But first, the economy is getting back underway and with the world of pro sports is as well. Stay ahead of the curve with the unparalleled tools of two world-class news desks covering developments across finance, economics, technology, and sports. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com. And if you're not already an athletic subscriber, for a limited time, you're going to receive a complimentary subscription to The Athletic. Go to Bloomberg.com slash subscribe to sign up today. Let's get started here with Matt Penny. The legend, Matt Penny, is in the building. Penny, how you doing, man? I feel great. Invested a new microphone. I'm out of my closet recording mixtapes, and I'm here with you. It's great. Oh, my God. You're, you, you have, like, an office. What are you talking about? I'm fucking sitting here in my bedroom, like, using <laughs> yeah, a Yeah, I'm in a guest bedroom, office. too, using, using a makeup stand. It's good. <laughs> it's like the Kanye picture when he's in the studio by himself, and then he's in Ferrari, the next one. Like, remember your friends who are grinding with you so that's us we're in side bedrooms just getting it done love it this is what we need uh in this episode of the game theory podcast as i mentioned uh in the little intro we're going to talk a little bit about bubble takeaways we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that there's no clear uh number one pick in this draft we're going to talk about uh just the bubble in general and how it's like been kind of weird and you know i think that penny you kind of brought up before this is this real life is the bubble real life uh i think it is i know you don't you hate it but (laughs) i'm i'm enjoying watching the scoring and i'm not mad when we're having 50 and 40 points traded back and forth by two really good young guards uh the numbers are staggering i saw a basketball reference tweet before this that Donovan Mitchell is 10 points away from the most points ever in a first-round series, 10 behind LeBron. And the last three games, Jamal Murray is shooting 64% from the field and 63% from three. So does this transition next year? I don't know, but I am enjoying watching it for now. So let's let's talk about the Jamal Murray-Donovan Mitchell off before we get into what will be a pretty draft-heavy episode as well. <laughs> I love watching it. I think it's great. I think it's an incredible display of shot making by these two guys. I'm really struggling with these two teams defensively. <laughs> I knew really you wanted bad. to say that. Yeah. They're really bad. They're both right. They're, really, I mean, they're, really they're bad. bad. But you, when you see the shots these guys are making, though, I mean, coming off the high ball screens, step back, threes and transitions, like some of it's self created, I would say, though, too. Now, when they turn the corner and get in the lane, and Donovan's like looking around for another defender to step up and he's just Euro stepping and finishing by himself. Like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, even some of the stuff with Donovan, right? Because Utah consistently plays this or Jamal, I'm sorry. Um Utah plays this drop covered scheme, and this is something I want to talk about in general, and we'll get to that in a minute. But like Utah just does the same thing every single time defensively almost like they're rarely making an adjustment like I do think that at a certain point they have had Rudy come out and play not quite flat but like a little bit higher in his drop just to like be able to contest Jamal a little bit but 
it's a half measure. Like they're still dropping at the end of the day. And Jamal is just able to come around these ball screens, like with his left hand, take a step back and pull up. Like it's nothing like that's an open shot. And a big thing that I mentioned on the last podcast is that everyone I've talked to down in the bubble has just been like the shot lines, the sight lines, everything is just absolutely amazing for shooters in this thing. We're set up to have, crazy offense because of that. And when you get guys like Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray, who are just fucking riding a heater at the end of the day, right? Like it's, they're never going to stop with these sight lines. Like they're never going to miss these shots until they break their uh, momentum in a way. And that just hasn't happened. And I think I've, I think I saw a stat earlier today from ESPN sports and information that said that out of the six, games where two opposing players have scored the most points in a game. Three of them have come with Mitchell and Murray in this series. It's like Jordan and someone else. Like it, the, the people are ridiculous that you're seeing here, but like they've had three games where one of them's gone for 50 and the other one's gone for 40. And I don't mean to take anything away from those guys. They're absolutely incredible, but like I'm struggling a little bit with the defense, I guess of it all. Yeah. I'm really struggling with the defense. I think with the sight lines thing, it's like the antithesis of the final four, right? Like yeah. when you go and play in some big stadium and the guys start out flat, they're not used to shooting like that in a sea of people and humanity behind them. Now it's a little different. You have like almost a wall behind the hoop, like you're playing at a good high school gym to an right. extent. But I, I, the reality of does this transition, it, it does remind me of the old adage that the world is full of practice players. And the reason I say that is every year college basketball to have these like secret scrimmages before the season starts. So it's like, Oh, Florida state played Ohio state, you know, Florida state won 82 76. And that's like kind of what this is to an extent, right? Like there's nobody in the crowd, like obviously you're going to have nerves, but you're just kind of out there playing more freely. And I wonder how much that kind of adds to the mental psyche of, of guys out there just, kind of letting it fly and not really worrying about any backlash. Yeah. You, you don't have fans in the arena. Like you don't have these like ambient noises and sounds like you're basically just rocking in a practice gym and it's amazing. I love it. Like I think it's been, incredible. now you're back. Now you love it. Okay. It's been incredible from an offensive perspective and I've enjoyed watching it. Like I fucking love it, but I, I'm trying to figure out how much of it is actually like translatable to next year. And how much of these guys like really improved because based off of this series, both Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray are like top 15 players in the league. And yeah, I don't is, think that's true. Yeah. And I think it, it goes beyond those two guys, but they're just at such a higher level right now that they're going to take the headlines. But there's plenty of other guys who've broken out in the bubble and it's like, okay, it's this undrafted guy, the second round guy that got more run, whether it's because of, injuries or what have you are they going to stay consistent the following year too yeah is tim luawu cabarro going to be a rotation player for the nets next to kd and Kyrie next year the bubble would have you believe yes maybe i mean they were looking for bodies pretty badly and they're it, it's like the donovan thing i mean we were talking before about draft position and he had an opportunity there to really leave his mark they needed scoring from that spot so it's also guys taking advantage of opportunity they may not normally have. Yep. So let's uh, let's talk about Donovan particularly because there are very few, if any, players across the entirety of the NBA 
that you have more experience with and that you have more um, of a background of knowledge that you can share with people than with Donovan because you've seen Donovan's growth and maturity from the time that he's what, like 16, something like that. Yeah. I mean, he was, he played on the Under Armour circuit. He went to Brewster Academy up in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, played for Jason Smith. So saw plenty of those games and uh, came to Reebok camp. So he was been around a lot. And I, like I've said before, Donovan's a, an unbelievable kid, a great worker, comes from a great family. I thought he'd be good in the NBA, but admittedly, I, I never, ever saw this. And it, you look at the draft, too. I mean, in 2017, he ends up going 13th. Uh, I know a lot of teams wish they could have that draft back, and guards in front of him included <laughs> Frank Nikilakina, Dennis Smith Jr., Malik Monk, Luke Kennard, and then you also had toward the top there, Fultz, Ball, Tatum, et cetera. And bam, I went 14th. But uh, I've always been a, a huge Donovan fan, but even what he's doing now, I just I didn't envision him doing this at, at such a high level consistently. So, yeah, I agree with you. And I wrote a story for Sporting News back in, like, the year before uh, – his, it was the summer before his sophomore year, the breakout year that he had. And I was at Adidas Nations where he was there and he played okay at Adidas Nations. But what impressed me and what made me realize that he was going to get the most out of whatever potential he had was here he is. He's this kid who's from the Northeast was going to Louisville. He gets a weekend in Southern California. Everyone who gets this weekend in Southern California is like, Hey, like, let's get out of here early. Maybe we go to bed so we can get to the beach early. Maybe we, uh, go do other things. Right. Maybe we're going out and having a good time. Cause we're in LA for maybe the first time in their life. In many cases, Donovan Mitchell, like missed a bunch of open shots. He specifically missed like a game winner in these scrimmages to like have his team win like it was college kids against college kids, basically just like playing scrimmages that don't matter for anything other than playing in front of NBA scouts. And instead of like packing up and going, he grabbed a ball and found like an empty hoop and just started shooting. Like immediately you started shooting, started shooting, getting shots up. And I'm like, who, who is this first? I realized it was Donovan, like, as I walked up close. And then next, I have a conversation with him, like, hey, Donovan, like, would you mind taking a few minutes? Love to chat with you. And he's like, hey, yeah, just let me finish getting my workout in, right? Uh, 45 minutes later, after his workout, so he shot for, like, an hour after everyone had left the gym, basically, except for me, him, his mom, and I forget if it was a brother or sister. I think you told me earlier. It probably, probably would have been a sister. Jordan, yeah. yeah. Um, in this gym just waiting to sh- like for him to finish his workout. Eventually he finishes. We talk for like 20 minutes. Uh, elite level kid. Like you can tell just like super high character kid, obviously just donated uh, essentially 90 grand uh, to, uh, I believe a scholarship fund for Jacob Blake's uh, kids to go to college. Like, right. With his new shoe launch. Yep. Yeah. Incredible, incredible human being. But you can also just tell that like the work work ethic was there from day one, that whatever his ceiling was, he was going to reach it. Now, I do think that there are some very substantial and real changes he's made since even that year at Louisville that have made him be as good as he was. Like he was a two foot leaper 
uh, in high school, in his first year at Louisville, and even in his second year at Louisville, he was mostly a two-foot leaper as a finisher. He totally changed that and became a one-foot leaper who could maneuver around guys on the ground and get open angles at the rim to finish. And when you have a seven-foot wingspan, it becomes a lot easier to do that whenever you're also able to angle yourself and create that angle on the ground. So he has made genuine improvements that are difficult even for hard workers to do. But I agree with you. I I did not see him becoming top 20 player in the NBA even at all. Yeah, and there's some things to unpack there, too. Athletically, he was a late bloomer. I want to say he has, like, size 18 shoes or, or somewhere around there. And he, like, grew into his body later. Like, he was he started to really show his athletic tools off, I think, around, like, his junior year of high school, where he's really starting to do stuff off the bounce and go through layup lines. He's windmilling put through his legs, albeit off two feet. And you're like, holy smokes, that is not something that I expected coming out of him. And then also, he wasn't this really revered kid where he was like top 15 in the country all that happened so late that was like his junior year heading into his senior year he was a late add to the elite 24 game so like all the basketball fame stuff was relatively new to him and i think going to louisville and playing for coach patino he keeps you pretty grounded while you're there as well and the last piece is he grew up around the mets organization his dad worked for the new york mets so i don't think that some trip to LA or a little bit of glitz and glamour really was something that, you know, turned off his work gauge for the weekend. I think he saw that as an opportunity to get better and, and measure himself against the best. And you could see his confidence really growing that last year, Brewster Academy. Uh, I thought he'd be in Louisville at least three years. Obviously it was wrong. And he's carved out uh, an unbelievable role here. And it, it is just crazy. It's crazy to see like, he was 44, he's 50. Oh, he had a bad game at 35 uh, every single night in the series. So I think game seven will be fun and hopefully more drop coverage. So they can have 60 each and you can pull your hair out and send some tweets about, you know, I'm having fun. <laughs> I'm having fun as I pull yeah. my hair out and like melt down about like, what are these teams doing in terms of strategy? Um, do you want to talk about Jamal Murray? What is, I don't know what your background is with Jamal, to be honest. I mean, not as heavy outside of knowing that what he's doing in the bubble is unbelievable and and coming out of Kentucky, same thing. Like, I really liked him, but in that draft you had, I don't know if it was across the board, but a lot of people said it was Ben Simmons, Ingram, and then kind of a drop-off, and then it really went Jalen and Bender, Dunn, and and Buddy Heald, and the Celtics drafted third, and being from Boston, I kind of looked at that pick, and Wondered who they were going to get. Thought they'd get some shooting. Thought it might be Buddy Heald. It wasn't. Um, and then Jamal goes there. I, again, I thought he'd be fine. I thought he'd be good. But he's like the latest in a longer run of Kentucky guys that have done more than what they really showed at Rupp Arena. Yeah, there's no question there. He has gotten better as a lead ball handler. Like when he was there, I, I didn't really see him as someone who could like take over an offense and be right. like true point guard. And like, look, they have Nikola Jokic uh, certainly initiate a lot of their sets, right? Like he's not the pure point guard there. He is playing a lot more of a scorer role and that puts a lot less pressure on him to try and improve other aspects of his game. But the way that he's improved his finishing craft, I think has been remarkable. The way that he uses his body to 
just kind of angle the ball away from guys and protect it and then use different angles as a finisher, I think is really impressive. Uh, the way that he's really improved as a pull-up shooter, like that Kentucky scheme, a lot of it for him was coming off of pin downs and, uh, you know, just catching and firing, right? And he averaged 20 points a game. 20 points a game. He shot over, I think, 42% from three or somewhere around there. Like, he was good. But, yeah, right. I'm like you. I remember him hitting a three, doing the big bow and arrow thing, the running back on defense. I didn't think he would be – this incredible guy who splits two defenders, does a reverse 360 layup and finishes with his off hand, you know, in game five or whatever it was. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous that he is turned into this. And it's like kind of made me, made me think like, what is his, he's made, he has made me reassess what I think his ceiling is. Because coming into the series, I think that a lot of folks within the basketball industry on teams and, um, you know, in the public sphere as well, kind of questioned is that contract going to end poorly right for the Denver Nuggets he has I believe 158 million or something uh over five years and you know is going to be right around what it'll be like 130 left on that deal for four years after this season so like I think that where that was where the conversation was, and he's totally changed that now. Uh, is he going to be someone that actually lives up to that contract? If this continues into next season, sure. And look, Don, or, uh, Jamal was very hit or miss last year in the playoffs. Like There were games where he was absolutely spectacular and was the absolute key as to why they won the game uh, in the playoffs last year. I believe specifically in the San Antonio series uh, stands out in my brain is one where he kind of had a few games that were awesome and kind of had a few games that were, uh, that were not super awesome necessarily. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling up the numbers now as we talk and basketball reference is moving very, very slowly, unfortunately. Um, but then he goes and plays Portland. And if I remember correctly, again, like the Portland series, he was just kind of okay. Uh, and didn't necessarily stand out in the way that we had hoped maybe is the way to put it. Um, yeah. So in the, in the San Antonio series, he goes in the final four games, he goes 24 points, 23 points, 16 points, 23 points. And then in the Portland series, he has the big 34 point game. Uh, whenever that game went to like 14 overtimes, right. how many yep. it was exactly. Then he follows it up with 34 the next game uh, in a big win. But then these last two games, he goes 7 of 16, or last three games, he goes 7 of 16, 7 of 20, 4 of 18, and kind of shoots him out of it. So for him to go as supernova as he did this year makes me think that he kind of learned a lot about where he could improve and how he could uh, make a leap in these playoffs. And, and he certainly just kind of incorporated everything. Yeah, and it goes back to your point. Do you think the bubble is real life? Do you think that <laughs> the defenses are going to continue to do this and, and let him play the way he is? I mean, he's also gotten out in transition and created a lot of stuff too, which I think has opened up a lot. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, look, he's playing Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum too. I mean, it, it's different, right? It's like you're, it's a different brand of attacking guard theory, so maybe just a better matchup there. And he's gotten better and, and taken more responsibility as a – a lead scorer creator and doing a lot. So let's just talk about the bubble, I guess. Now let's, let's move to that. 
And my question is right now, why are teams that play drop coverage as their primary defensive scheme in the regular season, why have they been so slow to adjust to trying something else, basically? Like in Portland's case, they couldn't do anything else, right? Portland has Yusuf Nurkic, who was coming off of injury, Hassan Whiteside, who you just straight up can't put in space, and then Zach Collins was injured, right? So they just didn't have a choice. They had to play drop coverage, and the Lakers destroyed them for it, right? But a team like Denver, like Nikola Jokic, they often do play like pretty flat, and they have adjusted some defensive looks here and there throughout the series, but they are giving Donovan a few too many you know, easy shots that he can just step into coming off the screens. Uh, Utah... They, I don't understand why they don't play a bit flatter with Rudy Gobert. Like, I guess that maybe they're concerned about what has happened in the past against guys like Russell Westbrook and, um, you know, the Houston Rockets specifically have really put him into space. But, like, I don't know if Denver is necessarily going to do that. Like, I I would like to see them play uh, a bit more flat coverage. Uh, Milwaukee was fine defensively in that first series like you look at the numbers like they have a 1019 defensive rating but they were also playing Orlando who was like a totally terrible offensive team in that series um like I just keep like looking at these teams like the Clippers like Luca absolutely murdered them when they played drop coverage and eventually they did try and switch uh, away from drop coverage and it really helped them uh get Luka Doncic different looks and Luca was just not quite as successful. I'm just wondering why these teams aren't as willing to kind of go away. And part of it's probably personnel. Part of it's kind of, you know, this is what you do, but man, I I would be hoping to see some adjustments out there, I guess, in a way that we haven't necessarily seen. Right. And you'd think they'd make adjustments for game seven, maybe throw out the book and say, this isn't working. This is working. But a lot of it has to be personnel, right? It's like, these are your available guys. This is the way we need to play guys who stay with it and, and stay with that similar defensive scheme and the games are being scored in the 120s, you'd think they go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what can we do differently? Can we throw a little bit of zone? Can we switch a little bit more? Do we go small? Do we go big? I mean, we were texting the other day about how Toronto was forced to go big with Siakam in foul trouble. So he had Saul and Ibach out there at the same time and immediately – Brad Stevens goes to kind of like a ISO clear out for Tice to get a quick two. So it yep. really is kind of dependent on what you have for available guys too. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that where I go with that next is if I was a team that, you know, had to play drop coverage, like for instance, like Minnesota, I just wrote about Minnesota for today. 20,000 words. Literally. I think it was. <laughs> yeah. So it was good. It was good. Too, it was- too many words. But, like, Minnesota has to play a drop coverage scheme as their primary because they have this unbelievable matchup advantage at center in Carl Anthony Towns, who's going to get you 27 and 12 a night and knock down threes and be arguably the second-best offensive center in the league behind Jokic, right? But behind him as a backup or even as someone that could potentially play next to him, I would want someone who can give me a different defensive look. Like, I would want someone who can be switchable defensively or at least play, like, flat coverage defensively, and then you have to, like, fight over the top of the screen and recover, right? Like, I would just want someone who can give me a different look. And a lot of these teams, they don't really have that. Yeah, and 
you know, your piece today, it was funny. I was, I was scrolling. I'm like, who's he going to say for Minnesota to take? And it's a good, like, kind of transition to more drafty stuff. Yeah. And when I saw number one, trade, I'm like, well, that makes sense. But in a draft like this, where there's not necessarily the value at the top as there usually is, and you reach for an Okongwu there, like, you're not taking James Wiseman for, for reasons we just outlined. LaMelo and Anthony Edwards aren't helping defensively next to uh, D'Angelo Russell. So, yeah, that the answer is probably Onyeka, but I don't I don't know. I, you don't take him first, right? Yeah, like you try and slide back a couple picks, pick up some extra value, and then you take Onyeka if that's the guy that you want. Part of Minnesota particularly is I think the way that that front office is going to operate is they're just going to operate based off of um, just wanting guys. Like they want value, they want asset value as much as anything i think they're going to keep kind of moving and shaking a little bit via trade with this roster up until the start of not the 2020-21 season but the start of the 2021-22 season um until they have a core that they think they can compete with around d'angelo russell and carl anthony towns but i guess that where i just keep looking at this you know, and using another team like Portland, for example, like Portland went out of its way to try and sign um, Hassan Whiteside or to try and trade for Hassan Whiteside because they knew that Nurkic was not going to be totally healthy this year. I would have gone like a totally different direction, assuming I was going to get Nurkic back at some point. Like I would have gone for a mobile center, even like even someone like, like Noah Vonley can at least play like flat coverage and give you something different, I guess is my point. Like I would want something different than what I have. If I'm playing, yeah, you want, coverage. you want a more small ball guy that can switch, that can hold guys on the perimeter a little bit longer. That's not exposed being pulled out there. And yeah. that, that also plays to, okay, James Wiseman and Carl Towns can't play together. The Ibaka and Marcus all thing didn't work there and didn't work in crunch time. You can only do it for, these small little segments of time, or you're right, you get exposed, especially when you're playing good guards who are averaging 42 points per game each. Right. Right. No, 100%. So I guess that where I'm going with this is if I was drafting this year, I would want the ability to, at the very least, not have to play drop coverage. Like maybe that is my primary if I have a Carl Towns or someone, but if I was building a roster and I got to build it from scratch, I don't think I would want to build a roster where drop coverage is like my immediate go-to. And like the antithesis of this is obviously the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Like they are the best team in the league uh, defensively this season and they play primarily drop coverage, but my argument against them would be that they have the defensive player of the year. Yeah, Giannis exactly. Giannis, who I don't, I, I don't know what position he is. And he covers ground and everywhere and has an enormous wingspan. So it, it's different. It's not like a traditional five like you're talking about. Yeah. Right. And if you are going to play drop coverage, so many people have looked at the center position as being the most important because you have to have the short area quickness and you have to have the length to be able to kind of um, – play within the gap and be able to contest floaters while also being able to slide backward and use verticality. Right. I almost think that Giannis position is more important now after watching that you have to have the back line 
that can be a primary uh, weak side rim protector that if your guy has to play up a little bit, then that guy is always there to clean up the scraps. Like, I, I feel like that's just what you have to do. Yeah, I mean, if you can get Giannis, you get Giannis, right? But it's like the Celtics game from yesterday. They got really good minutes combined from Tice and Robert Williams. Right. And not necessarily traditional-ish centers, but, you know, we have 15 rebounds and you're able to expose the Raptors going big. I mean, I, I think that's the, the way the NBA is, is certainly trending. And if you can get seven-footers who can move and defend and rebound, obviously you get it, but then you have to work around it. Yeah, are you having Noah Von Ley play center somewhere? I mean, that might be a better option than what guys have done in the past. Yeah, and like Daniel Tice... I don't want to get hooked on Noah Von Ley, but I just mean like his, his kind right. of archetype of guy. Right, and like Daniel Tice, for instance, is like kind of a perfect example of this because he is someone that can play flatter coverage. Like, he, you don't want to, like, just straight up switch him onto a guard, right? Like, he probably will get cooked out there doing that. But you can play a flat coverage with him and then have Marcus Smart. Or even, like, Kemba Walker is good in recovery because he fights at least. Like, he's small and doesn't have great length. And, you know, if he's contesting from behind, it's probably not going to work as well. But if Tice can contain off the dribble while Kemba's recovering and then recover backward because Tice has that mobility... Like, that's a win, I think. Like, we've kind of... Oh, totally. Under, I feel like Daniel Tice has gone kind of underrated throughout He did. He, he was... He was you know, the Celtics, I mean, they're, they have a million centers, but none of them really kind of fit what they were looking to do. And earlier in the season, when Tice would kind of do that dribble handoff fake, guys would just give him, you know, five, six feet because he wasn't shooting as well. And now he's hitting threes. So you have to respect what he's doing there. It, it opens the game up so much more. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, what did you, what is kind of your takeaway? Do you have another one kind of based off the bubble in terms of how you would think about draft strategy? Yeah, we've talked about this a little is kind of your take on smaller guards and, and how they fit into the NBA ecosystem. And what I mean by that is I was talking to a friend the other day and he said, okay, think about what Trey Burke and campaign gave in the bubble, right? I think Trey Burke is on his sixth team and drafted ninth. Mm-hmm. Campaign is on his fifteen fifth team, I think, drafted fourteenth. Played very well, and you kind of pick these guys up deep into free agency. It's like, why don't you roll the dice more with wings in the the thirties, forties when you have those type of guys? You had Fred Van Vliet, you have TJ McConnell undrafted. The six foot undersized guys, they they kind of find their way back to the league where you don't necessarily have bigger guards, wings readily available that can contribute. And when you look at this draft, just as kind of frame the question for you, you have a lot of guys in that mold and, and Dotson and Cassius Winston, maybe Nico a little bit, Malachi, Peyton Pritchard. There's a lot of guys that fit in that same category of, all right, is it worth taking a smaller guard at say, 32 rather than maybe an Elijah Hughes or a a McDaniel, somebody like that. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting point. And I have been kind of thinking about that a little bit in regard to someone that I really like in Cassius Winston, right? Like I've been thinking about Cassius Winston in the vein of someone like a Devontae Graham, right? And Devontae Graham is someone that 
I really liked this year because he makes good decisions with the ball as a passer, but more than that, because he's become an elite level pull-up threat. And Cassius Winston is someone who also makes good decisions as a passer, or let me rephrase, sometimes makes poor decisions as a passer, but is a good passer who sees the second and third level of the defense while also being an elite level pull-up shooter. But someone like campaign is like that size, you know, like Devonte right. Graham is bigger than Cassius Winston and Grant Riller is bigger than Cassius Winston. Yeah. So he's six, three. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So like I've been kind of struggling in my brain and like another one that I really like is Malachi Flynn, right? Like we've talked about, Malachi. you love Malachi Flynn. Yeah. Yeah. And Malachi is small, but Malachi also like defends his ass off. Like to me, if I was drafting a small guard, I would want someone who I know is going to defend and who I know can get his own shot, I think are the two critical skills right now um, for those guys to have success. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard. Uh, Cassius Winston might not be able to get his own shot, unfortunately. Like he might need a ball screen and those guys are just like a lot of pick and rolls. Yeah. Right. And those guys are just like a little bit inherently less valuable because if you get, if you like have to switch that ball screen and you get a wing or a two or someone on him, uh, he probably isn't going to be able to beat that guy. Even if you get like a four or five on him, he's probably not going to be able to beat that guy. Right. And that Devonte is a, a good counter to the argument. And I think Jalen Brunson is too, albeit him being injured right now, uh, who coincidentally went back to back in the 2018 draft, but it is, interesting to think about just because you're looking in we'd say maybe not as deep a draft as we've had i mean i think there is some value late in the first early second but just not necessarily the the firepower that we've looked at before and it just kind of shapes how you want to put your team together and there's there's guys that will be there there's guys that are will emerge whether it's one of those small guards or not that comes out in the second round I guess I'm just saying, why not try to do it on a wing and, and just get one of those guys in either two-way or, or after the draft or through summer league? I mean, those guys probably will all be drafted, but there'll be others of similar vein who you can get on a kickback like a Trey Burke or campaign. Yeah, and I think you're right on that. I will not um, go against Malachi Flynn. I know Malachi that. You will Flynn not is, take his name in vain. You've made I, that I will clear. not. Um, but guys like, like I probably will drop like Cassius Winston, um, Peyton Pritchard's another one that's pretty small. Devon Dotson's pretty small. Uh, like I probably should like move those guys down a little bit if only because if they can't play in ISO, it becomes a lot more difficult for them to create efficient offense in my opinion. Um, I think that's a very insightful statement from you. Yeah, it wasn't. I'm a collector of information that I blast out to the people. I can never take some of these things as, as my own. <laughs> um, but like Desmond Bain's a guy that I've had pretty high throughout the process. I have Elijah Hughes at like 34. I feel comfortable taking Cassius Winston at like 34. If right. I'm, but, but, but like you said, like those, those two guys are, are six, five, six, six, right? It's like, you feel more comfortable taking those guys as opposed to maybe Cassius at that spot. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. Like I would rather bet on a wing. Probably a wing that can shoot is maybe the better way to put it. Yeah. Nobody drafts centers or point guards anymore. Everybody's a wing, right? Yeah. That's a 
It's a very good It's like point. Fred Fred Van Vliet has become the guy now on the grassroots circuit. Like, oh, he's six feet, he's underrated. It's Fred Van Vliet. He's like ruined the point guard position like Kevin Durant's ruined being a you know, six ten two guard as Eric Bossy would like to say. Everybody's six ten. Oh, he's really a guard. He's just playing out of position. It's like Yeah, yeah Jane I, I Jane guess. McDaniels is a guard. Like it's fine. Yeah. No, right. he's closer to being a five than he is to being a guard. Like, yeah, and that's the that's the ironic thing is you have all these guys who are you know, the Kavon Looney's of the world who are six seven, six eight, who are whatever, top five prospects out of high school. They never thought they would have been playing the center, but they, they do it and that's their role and guys make money doing that, but for whatever reason, jacking threes at six nine is uh I guess a lot more appealing to the youth, but I'm I'm yelling at cars right now. Kavon Looney is a good one because Kavon coming out of Milwaukee was a legitimately so skilled, like six foot nine, seven foot four wingspan, like combo forward kind of. Right. But you never thought he was like a small forward. No, like like, he's a four, he's a five in in the new school NBA. Like I never saw that kid and said, yeah, we got to get him more ball schools and be a, a two. I will say like, I thought he was probably a, like a playmaking four. That's but like, yeah. it just shows how skilled NBA players are. Like, NBA players are so goddamn good that, like, that guy who was a top 10 recruit coming out of high school because he was as skilled as he was with the ball in his hands, that guy's like a dirty work center in the NBA now who just, like, does what he has to do to stick in the league and does a great job of it. Like, I don't mean to disparage him in that way, but that's not – my point is that, like, it's not a disparagement to say that he's done what it takes to stay in the league and has become like a very, very, very effective role player on title teams. Yeah, and if you don't, if you don't adapt to it, you're just out of the league. They'll draft somebody else the next year who will do it. Right, 100%. And, and, he, and, and he's gotten better and he's embraced what he is. And look, there's, there's guys in the draft that aren't going to and they'll be overseas in a few years. That's just the, the way of the world. So you wanted to talk about the fact that there isn't a clear-cut number one in this class. And yes, I just kind of want to give you the floor to be able to do that. But first, let's hear from two quick advertisements. This is the Athletic Football Show. I think every football season is a big challenge in one way or another. Introducing the Athletic Football Show, an all-new podcast with me, Robert Mays, and a team of world-class NFL writers and analysts. We'll feature expert guests and our plugged-in beat writers from around the league. What Patrick Mahomes did in the last nine minutes is just absurd. You can subscribe now to the Athletic Football Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And stay with us all season long as the Athletic brings you what matters most in today's NFL. Okay, uh, Penny is here still. We're back. And now we're going to talk about uh, his take on kind of the race for the number one prospect and who he thinks uh, is the best prospect, maybe. Like, I don't even know if you want to give us that. But, like, I'm fascinated in just kind of where your stance is on this number one overall uh, player consideration. Well, I don't know. And the bigger picture is it's been such a weird year for everyone everywhere, but in basketball especially where – you had no Final Four. You had no national champion. You've had the draft pushed back. I mean, I think people forget what day it is. It's August 31st. I mean, the draft would have been over for two months by now under normal circumstances. Yep. The salary cap's and, up and in the air. By the way, like, the draft still might not be happening for two months right, based off right. of, like, current reporting and having talked to, you know, executives around the league. Like, I think executives would prefer it doesn't happen for another two months. 
Yeah, and I'm glad we're staying on it and, and talking hoops, but like how many people are really searching for draft stuff right now? Like, I don't know. But there is no clear cut number one. And it's interesting to me because each of these players who are kind of in consideration have a very unique background. Anthony Edwards, a true one and done. James Wiseman, I like to say he's like a high school to pro guy because he played three games in college and then he was out. LaMelo is this somewhat international player, played in the United States a little bit at Spire Academy. Uh, Denny's an international mystery man. And then you have, I don't think Obi Toppin's necessarily the in contention for number one, but he's the college basketball darling on an unbelievable Dayton team that probably would have made a run deep into March into April. Uh, all that being said, I don't know the kind of separation I think it's different if you're saying who fits in Minnesota versus who the number one overall prospect is. I, I still am on the LaMelo bandwagon as you are, but I, I, there's also not really opportunities for any of these guys to leapfrog one another right now either. Yeah. And the, what the NBA does with, making choices on can kids like travel to facilities because right now they cannot, uh, is there going to be a virtual combine? You talk to 10 different people, you're going to get seven different answers in terms of the structure of it, in terms of will it happen? Some people think it won't happen. Like there, and these are like people around the league that like should theoretically know. And it still is just kind of up in the air right now. It seems like in terms of what that will look like if it, if they choose to make it exist, uh, it's just very difficult. And I think that people ask me all the time, like, how is someone raising their stock? How is someone uh, moving up and down draft boards? At this point, it really is just like an eye of the beholder situation. Like you get Intel on these kids and like you talk to teams and it's just like, okay, this is what's happening. Um, this is where we think guys are like, Throughout the process, there have been more cooks in the kitchen also than what I think has ever happened before. Like, if you have a coach that's been around long term, like Steve Kerr, right? Steve Kerr hasn't been able to get involved in the Warriors draft process until like two days before the draft every single season, right? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like, Steve Kerr was involved in their draft process now four months before the draft happened and has probably intricately watched every single one of these prospects that they would considerably take at number two. Right. And, and that, that, that one too is like, I, I think a lot of places right now have said maybe James Wiseman's that guy and you're on your drop coverage, small center stuff. Does he fit with the Warriors as an old school type of center? I mean, there was a, a Anthony Slater, who's the golden state Warriors beat writer. I was reading on the athletic, his quote was, young centers are hard to keep on the floor in the playoffs. The Warriors should make the selection with 2023 in mind. 2023, Steph Curry will be 35 years old. I don't know if you're, you want to go through that experiment for whatever, the foreseeable future. I mean, they'll probably, I'm guessing, try to trade and get a piece and get a, a veteran too. But yeah, the Steve Kerr thing is is interesting. And I don't necessarily know who fits there. Like if Anthony Edwards applies to two, does he fit with their current schemes and personnel? So I also wonder how much the Warriors, A, I think the Warriors are the team most likely to move this pick uh, in the lottery. Like uh, they're definitely calling around and trying to gauge value and all that stuff. Um, that's not a secret though. Like that's been reported 
everywhere. Right. right? Um, I wonder how much they will consider using this pick as a potential down the road trade asset. Like for instance, in 2021 in at the trade deadline, they're going to have that player potentially if they don't move it before the draft and this Minnesota Timberwolves pick from next year, potentially that is going to be a top, you know, in my opinion, probably a top seven pick seven. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be two really, really good good young players on cost control salaries, potentially move for a superstar. Like we don't know what the league's going to look like then. Do the wizards consider moving Bradley Beal by that point? Um, Do the bucks like, does someone get hurt in Milwaukee? Does Chris Middleton like tear his ACL or something? Oh, Jesus. Um, God hope, like, let's hope <laughs> yeah. that doesn't happen. Where'd that come from? Yeah. But like, if that happens and they can't compete and they feel like Giannis isn't going to resign, you probably have to make a consideration there about moving Giannis. And I think that that's a disaster scenario for Milwaukee. And I hope that it doesn't happen. And I think that there's a chance Giannis resigns this summer, but we don't know that yet, or I guess this off season, not summer now. Um, but we just don't know yet what any of the league is going to look like at the trade deadline in 2021. So I wonder if the Warriors, if they do end up having to use this pick, do they take the guy that they think is going to have the best long-term trade value, or at least the best trade value in 2021 to potentially pair with something else to go out and acquire another superstar that can play both now with Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson, and into the future and be their next superstar. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think the only certainty that we know is that there will be trades on draft night. And another thing that someone sent to me is the last three years, a team has traded out of the top five. I'd say probably Golden State. You'd think that they're the one if you're looking at the board right now, but it's going to happen. And uh, I, will, I will throw Minnesota out there as well. Gerson Rosas is not going to consider. He will explore every option. I feel sure, very but like, confident who, of that. Who do you think suitors could be that are just like, we need Anthony Edwards. We need Lomelo Ball. Like, we need pick number one. I mean, do I've you think up, there's anyone out there? I've brought up the Knicks as like a very real possibility. Okay. Um, just because if they really want like a true lead guard, this is a good draft to get that. If Charlotte wants to guarantee themselves who they like really want, right? Like, do they want to for sure get their next superstar or potentially their next superstar? Do they try to move up? Does Detroit under Troy Weaver try to make a splash by moving up? Because they don't really have like any young pieces that are amazing. Like, I'm not saying that any of this is likely. I'm saying that there are teams that you can make a reasonable case for moving up. Right. And class. and like you said, Pistons, Knicks, Bulls, all new management groups, like those are all very possible. I, I know after the draft, Troy, the draft lottery, excuse me, Troy Weaver kind of said, yeah, I like where we are. I like where we're drafting. I mean, we've had guys in Oklahoma City fall to us in the past. So, I mean, you're at seven and history showed outside the top five, like there's good players there. I mean, again, another quote I stole Mark Brown, New York Post said 13 of 24 All-Stars this season were drafted eighth or later. So there's guys out there. You have to trust in your scouting department. You have to trust in your own personal research because 
as much as people have crushed this draft and maybe it's bad maybe it's not as good as it should be and it's not even close to next year there's gonna be a guy here somewhere yep. now how you find him and how you earmark him whether it's 13 30 or, or first i don't have those answers you know i i have no horse in this race but i still beat my head against the wall trying to figure out why this guy's good and this one isn't and what signs we missed leading up whether it's characteristics or whatever his his shooting was lower from three but his free throw was good and it can improve but i don't think there's an exact science to that answer either and speaking of you know what did we miss and you know kind of playing monday morning quarterback like one thing that you want to talk about was just luka Doncic. oh yeah and the scouting process that went into that i i genuinely i generally think that for especially the Kings just so drastically overthought that situation. Uh, indisputably, they just fucked it up. Uh, but you give me your, give me your uh, spiel on what you want to talk about with Luca here. So, I mean, in that draft, he goes, Aiton goes first, Bagley goes second. He goes third, but when you really think about it, he kind of went fourth seeing Trey Young and him like flopped picks, right? Right. So, the Suns get the first overall pick. They hire his former coach from the Slovenian national team, Igor Kokoshkov, who is also an assistant coach of the NBA. It's not like, you know, you hired some dad whose kid's a high major to go somewhere. Like, he was legitimate, really well-known, good coach. Known for offensive flair. By he the way, pay- <laughs> it's really funny because it just made me think of the Knicks signing Kenny Payne to be an assistant coach, which actually might be that situation where they are hey, trying it to It might work. For, yeah, free agent season's coming up, and Devin Booker and those guys are excited. But anyway, uh, and Kenny Payne is a fantastic coach too. But that being said, uh, no offensive flair. You can put him with Devin Booker. You can imagine him coming off high ball screens, kicking to the corner, and Devin Booker you know, adding years to his career by not having to create on his own. But owner of the Suns, Robert Sarver, he's an Arizona alum. They take Aiton, who averaged 20 and 12. But he didn't play defense, he didn't shoot well. Like, you could see he could improve. And I think the Monday morning quarterback is a, is a great call because there were articles and places where people said, yes, I'd draft Luka first. But everywhere you looked, DeAndre was still number one prospect on all these boards. And then for Sacramento... Vladi Divac knows Doncic's dad, Sasha, for years. He was on the Yugoslavian cadet team while Vladi was on the national team. And you start getting these red flags around draft time. Okay, Luka has a bad diet. He parties too much. He has a bad run of games. Uh, he had overuse. Medical reports won't be released. What I'm kind of throwing back to you is, is it sometimes knowing too much about a prospect, a problem, and why was that a miss versus how much is this truly kind of revisionist history for the number one pick? So at the time I did think it was a miss Phoenix. So you had so Luca was number one. You had Luca one. Yeah. I had Luca two and I had Deandre and Luca at the same, like in the same tier, very clearly a step ahead of everyone else in that. Draft. Okay. So I don't really have a problem with what Phoenix did. To be honest, um, it's gonna I mean, you like to, you have to you have to like a little bit though now, right? It's like every oh, no, game no, this no. kid's yeah. scoring thirty nine on one ankle and he's appointment television. Just like what are we doing here? Yeah, no, like it was very clearly wrong. Um, but I mean, even back then, I mean, like I don't really have a problem with the 
process. I guess the process itself was not great, uh, given some of the reporting. Like, it seems like Ryan McDonough was kind of already on the outs, and James Johnson right. was, like, already running the show behind the scenes. And there was, like, a report, I think, from maybe the Arizona Republic or one of the radio stations in Arizona that did, like, kind of a deep dive into the process behind why they didn't take Luca. And um, one of the takeaways was, like, that Robert Sarver and – James Johnson went over to uh, Spain to go see Luka Doncic and like didn't invite McDonough. So like the process was fucked up for Phoenix in general, but I don't, I didn't really have a problem at the time taking Deandre over him. I think that the Sacramento thing was the prime example of overthinking the Intel that you have. Because Vladi has known the family for as long as he has. He had to have known that Luca is not like a bad kid, but like he must, he must have somehow overvalued like the, all of the off court questions because the diet was a real question. Like, does he go out a little bit too much? Like that was a real question at the time. Like you're not making that up. Um, And that was reported out there at the time as well. I think I did even, I think I wrote about it. Like, I think that he overvalued that aspect of it while simultaneously undervaluing how fucking hard it is to be the best player in goddamn Europe when you're a teenager. Right. Like he's not turning, he's not turning 22 until February of this uh, next year. Yeah. He was the best player on an entire fucking continent of basketball players and good basketball players of all ages who are somewhere between, let's say 16 and 35 who are just the level below NBA players. He was the best player on that continent, undisputably. Like, it wasn't even close that year. Like, I know that, like, Denny Abdia just won, like, the Israeli National, or the Israeli League's uh, Player of the Year. Like, he shouldn't have won that award. Like, Scotty Wilbekin was better than him this year on that same team, right? But that's fine, because Denny is a teenager, and this, this is a normal progression for a teenager, Right. In the case of Luca, this was not like an award that was given out for reputational considerations, right? This was given out because he was unquestionably the best player on the goddamn continent. And I think that at the end of the day, what it comes down to is putting the wrong emphases on certain things. Like whenever you look at a model for DFS, right? Like you can plug in certain values to certain things. Like, you know, I want 12% of the model to be about, uh, you know, a guy's three point shooting. I want 22% of the model to be about a guy's uh, finishing at the rim. I want 37% of the model to be about a guy's shot generation and the amount of field goal attempts that you can get from positive areas on the court, right? Like you can do all of these different inputs and you can adjust the inputs based off of what you're looking for. In the case of the Kings, I would imagine what happened was they put too much of an emphasis on the questionable athleticism and the questionable habits and not enough of an emphasis on this guy was just the best fucking basketball player in Europe, period, full stop. Yeah. So that was a follow-up I had, like based on your, your Intel and being yours and organization, at what point do you say like, okay, I get it. I understand there's some red flags or some hangups, but we're taking a dude and like Luke is a dude and we're taking him here and we're going to live with it because 
what he's able to do and create off the dribble and make everybody around him better, get his own shot, hit step backs. Like at six foot eight, that's going to be hard to defend in the NBA. I mean, people still had their hesitations about his athleticism and who he could defend. But yeah, there has to be a certain point where you say he's better than everyone else and we're willing to live with whatever comes with that. And with DeAndre going first, I'm also curious, has the game already changed so much in two years that if we redid yeah. this without knowing how it ends, does he even go first? No, right? I, so I, think, like, I think Luca would go first, even if we didn't have the benefit of knowing Even if what. drop coverage didn't exist in the bubble. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that just the value that is now placed on guards, Luca would go first. Yeah, and it's crazy to kind of look to. I mean, you said it, but the Luca I like to call it trail of destruction post draft. So Ryan McDonough was fired. I want to say before he even played a game. Is that correct? Uh, maybe a couple games, but it was not. Okay, so games. let's just say early. Uh, Igor Kokoshkov was fired after a year, and then is in this weird purgatory where he becomes assistant coach in Sacramento. So he coaches Aiton and then has to coach Bagley. And then Divac is fired. I mean, is when does Atlanta start being worried about how good Luka is? Because two organizations are already upside down because of it. Like, is he going to make a third? I mean, I, like this, barring injury, and as long as he gets a protector enforcer to, to prevent you getting karate chopped, uh, he's going to have a long, long career. I mean, the kid's 21 years old. Yeah, I feel like he has a chance to be like a top 10 guy of all time. Like that's the, tra- that's the trajectory we're on right now is he has a chance to be a top 10 to 15 player of all time. And if you wanted to say it was like more than that, I would understand why that would be your opinion. Um, right. Guy averaged 29, nine and like nine this year. It was unbelievable. The guy was absolutely incredible. He's going to finish in the top six of MVP voting this year. Uh, if you look at if you look at LeBron James in his second year, averaged twenty seven seven and seven. Uh, obviously, pace was a bit slower then. Uh, if I remember correctly, I'm pulling it up now. Uh, he finished eighth. Or no, he finished sixth in MVP voting in 2004, 2005. He finished ninth as a rookie in MVP voting. Uh, The next year, he finished second in MVP voting, 2005, 2006. Um, 2007, he finished fifth. 2008, he finished fourth. So, like, you know, in those first five years, he was hovering, you know, basically as a top five player in the league, right? And then he took that next great jump into being an MVP, right? Like, as soon as we start to see Luka who has already made that leap into being like a top five, top six guy in the NBA uh, in terms of MVP voting. If he can sustain that going forward and then maybe take like another mini leap, it's not going to take much for him to be on that trajectory that LeBron was on at the very least when he was this young. Right. And I think Rick Carla had a quote the other night and just said, you know, he needs to get healthy. we got to put the right pieces around him. Obviously, you want Porzingis healthy. It's like, okay, pulling it back to the draft. When you have, I want to say, the 18th pick, are you trying to package that to get someone else? Are you trying to get younger on the wing? Like we kind of talked about before for maybe like a, of a cell type. I mean, where do you kind of think that they move with that? Oh, I think they would love to get a wing that could play now. They're, I think they're going to have to move up to do it yeah, I do too. if they want. Yeah. 
Um, and they do have the 31st overall pick. So like maybe it's plausible that they could, uh, maybe they could move from 18 to 13 or so. Uh, you know, there, there might be a team within that mix. Like if you're, um, if you're San Antonio, like, are you, depending on what they decide to do this summer, could they be looking just to accumulate draft capital? Could Sacramento be like, we're comfortable moving down because, you know, maybe we wanted Isaac Okoro or something and he's not there. So now we can slide back a couple spots. Like I'll be interested to see what Dallas does, because I agree with you that they just desperately need uh, another wing that can knock down shots. Yeah. I don't know who the team is either, but I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be somebody who wisely tries to get into the 2021 upper tier of that draft too, just based on what's coming down the pipe. Yeah. I can't imagine that another team is like, there's no way that a team like the Knicks is going to move that pick. Like no way that I don't think Washington can move their pick. I mean, maybe Washington thinks that they're closer than I do. And with John Wall and Brad Beal coming back. Yeah. The Beal thing matters though too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, maybe if it fails, like, you can move Brad Beal and get that pick back, right? Um, yeah, I'd be pretty stunned, though, if they decided to go down that route. Like, Orlando, what Orlando does this year is going to be really fascinating to me, if only because they don't have John Isaac next year, and they're incredibly well-coached and very professional and very smart in terms of the way that they prepare their guys to play. But, man, that team is under-talented in such a substantial way. Right. So, yeah, it's going to be tough. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about or are we going to call it there, Matt? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, we can probably call it there knowing that we've, we've covered our, our fill of, of bubble and, and draft scratch that itch for the day. And I know at some point we'll get into the weeds for 2021 guys, but we have many moons to go before we get there. Yeah, we have 2021 guys. We still have 2020 guys. Like, we should do a deep dive on um, Alexei Pokyshevsky at some point because that guy is just fascinating in so many ways. Uh, We should do a, like, real deep dive on some of these guards. Like, Grant Riller and Tyrell Terry and Cassius Winston and Peyton Pritchard and some of these, like, later first round, early second round guys. Uh, I don't know that we should talk about Malachi Flynn anymore because – you're Malachi, not allowed to. I think yeah, Malachi might be getting against you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, might be getting a little bit concerned. I think. Yeah, uh, about nah, the amount of love of him. So, Matt, tell the people where they can find you on the internet. I'm on Twitter. You can find me. I have to tweet a lot more. I, I have like self conscious stuff about like the people care that I think that super bad is really rewatchable. But uh, Twitter, it's M P E N N one E. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Matt's great. Uh, super super bad is very rewatchable. By the way, you uh, can't you can't go past it if it's on cable television. There's nothing on TV. Yeah, and like the Ringer folks have built an entire podcast about rewatchable movies, so you're fine. Keep tweeting about that. I tweeted about Lovecraft Country last night. Like, and, and can't hardly wait. So you're we're we're in the same stratosphere, I guess. That's right. Can't hardly wait is fantastic. Still holds uh, up. It still holds up in every conceivable capacity. Dating myself, but yeah. No, 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 no. You're not dating yourself. We're still in our 30s. We're fine. It's true. <laughs> uh, 
I'm Sam Vecini. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. I just wrote a big breakdown on the Minnesota Timberwolves. Go read that. I will have a mini mock draft update at some point later this week, as well as updated draft rankings at some point this week. It's actually a pretty big week for us over at The Athletic uh, in terms of what I'm publishing. So go there, subscribe, uh, look at all that stuff. Uh, We'll be back later this week, probably talking more about NBA basketball uh, in the bubble as opposed to kind of utilizing it to form draft opinions like we did today with Matt Penny. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.